This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Yesterday I read this uh, poem by Rilke. Whoever grasps the 10,000 contradictions of their life folds them together into a single image. And that person, joyful and thankful, drives the rioters out of the palace and becomes celebratory in a different way. And presence is the guest that's received in the quiet evenings. So here's a similar one by Hafiz, 14th century Sufi master. It's always a danger to aspirants on the path when they begin to believe and act as if the 10,000 idiots who so long have ruled and lived inside them, have packed their bags and left time, (laughs) or died. They're merely on vacation. (laughs) Yesterday I was defining samadhi as continuous contact. Uh, You know, usually we uh, edit our experience. And interestingly, a lot of the editing is unconscious. We suppress, we compartmentalize, we avoid. And then we also just get distracted. Sometimes the signs of large trucks come by and <laughs> distract us from what it was we thought was going on. Uh, and in contrast to that, as we start to cultivate continuous contact, those psychological mechanisms for editing for making what's happening for us manageable, appropriate, maybe even orderly, tends to um, they tend to be set aside, and, and then we get to see more fully the disorderly. Uh, nature of human consciousness. Sometimes in practice it feels like at a certain point you're saying this yourself. Um, Things are getting worse, you know. When I started practicing, uh, it seemed to be having a wonderful positive effect. And now, um, now that golden glow has gone. I'm not saying that's how it is for everyone, but um, it's not uncommon. 
and interestingly, um, it, it's a very interesting challenge we're faced with, um, because certainly, if our sitting and our practice just becomes chaotic, um, how will you see the path as you walk? And it is true, sometimes, the persistence, the uh, virya, that kind of effort, persistence, resilience. We just keep going. And in its own way, Tashin is a fierce and wonderful example of that. Just keep going. In Japan, they have a little doll called a Daruma doll. And it's one of those dolls with a heavily weighted base. So, when you push it over, it, it comes back up. And, uh, Daruma comes from Bodhidharma. And it's actually, it's a little Bodhidharma. Like a Bodhidharma, like toy doll. And very common in the culture, or it used to be. I don't know if it still is. The the notion of um, getting pushed over and coming back up, and then also in East Asia, bamboo is prized for its resilience. You know, it doesn't stay upright when the winds are blowing on it. It bends, and then it comes back up. It's somewhere in our practice, within Sashin the same kind of resilience is asked of us. So what? All that just happened. The bell just rung. Now I do the next thing. And it's a very interesting process because um, it, it simultaneously asks us to be thoroughly dedicated and at the same time not attached to outcome. A couple of weeks ago I was teaching a class and I gave them this social experiment. I gave everybody a dollar bill, and I said, now, here's what I'd like you to do. Give that dollar bill to a stranger, but in the interaction, ask them, try to persuade them to give it away to somebody else. 
tell is they took the dollar bill and, and they took the uh, instructions seriously. That, uh, you know, normally you get something, a dollar bill, and you think, great, that's mine now. I'm putting it in my pocket. That's going to go to get me what I want. But the obligation that comes with it, you know, can you give it away to someone who will give it away? Um, that our lives are interconnected. So then, the gift you get is not the dollar bill, but you get the gift of interacting with someone else. And then very interestingly, then one next week I asked them what happened. And someone said, well I went up to this guy, you know, and I said to him, um, I'd like to give you a dollar bill, but there's something that comes with it. And the guy said, yeah, yeah, I know, pass it on to somebody else. <laughs> No idea. <laughs> Everybody already knew that exercise. <laughs> uh, there's something uh, that shifts when we shift from the notion, the experience of me as an isolated entity in my main agenda is me, you know? You give me a dollar bill, great. Now it's mine. Um, too bad for you, too bad for everybody else, <laughs> because it's mine. <laughs> when we have this sense of um, that our existence is related to others' existence, then um, something shifts. Yeah. And then when you put these two together, the internal factor of um, that our well-being depends upon um, somehow ignoring the things I'd rather ignore and just focusing on the things I'd rather focus on. When you put that together with that our interrelatedness um, and the giving and receiving of it promote our well-being. When you put these two together, um, you, you get the seventh factor of awakening. Equanimity. You, you start to, this, this resilience, um, 
this ability to be moved by the winds of life and return to a balanced uprightness, they're supported by both of these factors, you know. <coughs> and the process we go through uh, presents us with all sorts of difficulties. And they to get to that uh, state. And the interesting thing is that we we contribute to creating the difficulties. Someone tells you you're not so wonderful and you're offended. How dare you? And then you tell your best friend, you know, they said this about me. And then you both agree, actually, they're the terrible person. You know. Uh, Hafiz, in most of his famous teachings, uh, he's a 14th century teacher, adopted this humorous, whimsical style. And it runs counter to uh, many of our deeply ingrained psychological notions, you know. Self-esteem, you know. Uh, and the processes we go through, the problems we create for ourselves, the difficulties, the distress, the discomforts, As we work through them, you know, really the factors are saying, can we work through these, not so we get to some special prize at the end, but that we, um, we learn what it is to be a human being. And, and we learn to find within that humanness how to discover uprightness, how to discover a balanced, realistic engagement in being human. And it's not so much because we've achieved some startling perfection as it is that our sense of what it is to be human has a, uh, a thoroughness to it. I remember at San Francisco Zen Center in 1983, uh, we, we had a big uh, scandal. And, and it was, there was great chaos and commotion and distress. And uh, a Benedictine monk, Brother David Standlerast, who had been connected to Zen Center since his abbot had 
advised him after eight years in the monastery, the Benedictine monastery, he said, I think you should go and experience other traditions. And I recommend Zen. And so he did what he was told and he went to Tassajara. And he so enjoyed himself. People would talk to him as an excellent dishwasher. Apparently, he was a really good dishwasher. <laughs> he also had two PhDs, you know, <laughs> one from Harvard and one from Princeton. <laughs> but apparently, they prepared him for being a dishwasher at Tassajara. <laughs> So he stayed connected. And when this scandal arose, he came to visit. And I remember uh, when he heard all the details, how uh, nonplussed he looked. He was like, hmm. And I looked at him like, aren't you supposed to look like, oh my God, oh my God. And he looked back at me and said, Stuff like this happens. People do weird and wonderful things. Every one of us. I don't mean we all go around causing scandals. Uh, Hopefully not. Uh, Actually, we should all make an extraordinary, diligent effort to sustain the ethics of our practice. Um, But to sustain a realistic notion, you know, that that sustains an uprightness that gives us the capacity to meet our life. And you know, when I, when, when I describe it like this, it sounds like, oh, well, this is just some um, some some way of relating to the turmoil of life. You know? But very interestingly, you know, in a way, the, the way I've been describing the seven factors of awakening is more how they relate to our ordinary, more usual consciousness. But these factors, you know, were originally, um, in the suttas where they were described, they were originally about deeper states of meditation. And these two are linked, you know. This is nonsense saying to Joshu, ordinary mind is the way, you know. Because if there's some separation between your meditation practice and how you're living your life, you know, if your meditation practice is is, is a way to escape from your life or to have some kind of dissociation, then what's being discovered in your meditation practice isn't illuminating the karmic conditions that we live in. 
And as we eliminate the karmic conditions, then the equanimity can come into life. And the more we illuminate them, the tendency to be blindly stuck in them until we make a big mess dissipates. The tendency to have some, what we commonly call, blind spot, you know, is less. It would be lovely to say, it's guaranteed not to happen, that we'll have a blind spot. Um, It's not. But as we practice the awakening process, uh, and I would say, oh, the, the same Brother David Stendhal rest. And, and then somehow from 83, we became friends, and then for the last 15 years teaching together. until he retired a couple of years ago. He decided when he turned 90 that it was time to stop making the trip from Austria to Tassajara to teach. I thought, what a feeble excuse. One of his main practices, he has two main practices. One is gratitude, and the other one is humility. And when I think of Hafiz, and when I read Hafiz's poems, you know, uh, that kind of humility. That kind of nothing special. And it saves you a lot of grief. Then when you forget to ring the bell or ring the bell in the wrong place, it's just like, huh, okay, next time I'll be more attentive. (laughs) Maybe. And it creates within us and it creates between us a... um, a more generous uh, attitude. Mm-hmm. And you might think, well, doesn't that undermine your diligence? But it's like, as I was saying to you the other day, you know, like saying to you, if you need to move, move. You know? And then saying, you know, that's going to help you to learn how to sit still more effectively than saying, don't move. I mean, that's my notion. There are plenty of traditions where we'll say it the other way. You sit in the zendo and you move and then you yell. 
don't move. Um, the process of equanimity is not that we somehow create perfect, pure oasis in the midst of chaos. Equanimity is created by opening up delusions are inexhaustible. I've had a practice with them, my own and others. Okay, that's how it is. We open up and we learn. And yesterday, I was, you know, think, well, in some ways, the first five factors, you know, the, um, the mindfulness, the investigation, the diligence, the, the enthusiasm, and the ease set the stage for samadhi. And they do. But we can also, and I think in the West, usually what we do is we go straight to um, promoting samadhi. You know, I'm going to do meditation and I'm going to become concentrated and uh, experience a deep presence. Which is fine, except most of us find out that that way of coming at it, then the other factors come to, you know, just because this is an interconnected life, internally and externally. And that's, that's just how it is. And then just the same way that when you receive the dollar bill and think, well, it's not exactly mine. I mean, temporarily it's mine. And it comes with a kind of obligation, you know, like when I passed them out and then I described the exercise, I could see the look on some people's faces like, mm, maybe I don't want one, you know? <laughs> that the practice isn't um, the create some exquisite pristine separateness. That the practice is to open up and give and receive. And, and I would say, each of us will create our own variation of a th on a theme of that practice.
I marvel at, at you know San Francisco city center. You know, when someone arrives and they smile at everybody, then they say the people here are so friendly. When somebody arrives and they frown at everybody, they say people here are so grumpy, are so uh, unfriendly. You know, we're co-creating all the time. You know. And so when we see that this is what underlies equanimity, you know, this is what underlies samadhi, this is what underlies each one of the factors. Yes, there is a singularity, and it's habitually the primary re- reference, and there is a codependence, a relatedness, an interbeing. You know? The silence in the room affects our state of mind. The noisy dump truck made me think of yesterday. Someone across the street had two leaf blowers blasting away at the same time. I noticed. I noticed when they turned them off. That's our existence. And as we enter this uh, time in Shishin, I mean, it's very interesting because in one way we could say this is the last day, but it's not exactly. Uh, it reminds me of sitting Shishin with Harada Roshi. And uh, Shishin, the seven-day Shishin, ended about nine o'clock on the seventh night. And he said, Shishin is over. Let's go and do zazen. <laughs> and I thought, this guy is really not clear on the concept. <laughs> but that's what we did. Shishin ended, and then we all went and did zazen. <laughs> So we'll answer she, and then we'll go into Zazen tomorrow. Uh, and, and so this transitional time, you know, it, it offers a wonderful opportunity. What, what will occur? Internally, what will occur interpersonally, interactively? Mm-hmm. Can we carry something of um, 
the stillness, the quiet, the settledness, the heartbeat of dedication. You know, can we carry something like that with us? You know, that's what helps the Darumadal come back up. That we stay upright and we stay, we return to awareness. Not because all the uh, surrounding attributes are pointing us in that direction. And you can get to watch your own 10,000 idiots, your own 10,000 impulses and agendas and imaginings and regrets and anticipations, whatever the heck comes up. And can you see right there in your own process, it's real and it's unreal. It comes up, it has its own energy, it has its own impact, it creates its own version of reality. And it's just happening now. It's just flowering in the emptiness of interbeing in now. And this, this attitude is very helpful in our practice. Because even though we may have our blind spots, just because we've sat a little bit, a few decades or so, doesn't mean we've um, eradicated. I was reading um, a fascicle by Dogen. And I was admiring the genius, the insight, the, the, his language ability, his ability to weave images. Um, and then he paused to kind of severely criticize some other sect. And I thought, hmm, this guy's got a bit of an attitude, doesn't he? (laughs) (laughs) It always struck me, uh, has struck me, that every now and then, in his beautiful writings, such things appear. Maybe it's just his deep desire that everybody see the true way. Or maybe something stuck. That's how it occurs to me. And and can that be, as it arises, our teaching? Oh, is that so? 
we see the reality of it within our own karmic conditioning and we hold it in the big picture. Okay, that's one version of reality. And there are endless others. This is equanimity. Upright and falling down are just mere notions. The true way is just a mere notion. And yet, there is a path of liberation that can be experienced and realized through our diligence. This is the great con of practice. This is why we say the emphasis is on the process not the goal. Sometimes the places where you struggle, where you make a mess, are wonderful teachers. It would be lovely if they were always wonderful teachers, but it doesn't seem to be so. But they can be. So on this, no, the last full day, uh, watch. Watch if there's a tendency within you to kind of release. And I wouldn't say, by all means, don't let that happen. I would say, can you sustain your diligence and your dedication and not have a fixed notion as to what should happen and what should not happen? And in that interplay of separate existence and interbeing, Can you discover the equanimity of practice? Because as that equanimity comes into place, the samadhi, the continuous contact, becomes more available. And and the factors of awakening become more evident. They're they're always asked for. Noticing, noticing, noticing. 
noticing, acknowledging. Noticing, acknowledging, experiencing. And the steady diligence that that asks of us. And letting it soften, letting it create its own enthusiasm, the pity, its own enthusiasm. And when there's no enthusiasm, follow the schedule. whole thing be held with generous equanimity, so that it's inclined towards ease. Okay. This is what's happening now. And the continuous contact of samadhi Yes, it asks something of us, but it becomes more of a kind of a mutual interaction. It's like life is supporting us to practice. back to Galway Canal's image, you know, it's not so much that we endow each thing with its own beauty. It's more that the beauty appears. The scattered rain showers have their own beauty without any great effort something in us appreciates them so to take these foolish words and um, and metabolize them in a way that makes sense for how you're experiencing the self, how you're experiencing interbeing, how you're sitting on your cushion, how you're engaging all the different pieces of Sushin. It's a precious thing, Sushin. We can clarify things in Sushin that are hard to get at in other ways. And there's a way in which we hunger for that clarification, that resolution. There's a way in which it's our heart's desire 
It's the very thing that brought us here. And as we engage it in this way, where it becomes more inclusive, then as we move back into our life, it doesn't seem like, oh, now I'm doing something entirely different. No, it just simply seems like, okay, and now this is the next thing. Okay? doesn't seem to be such a big contrast. So to metabolize these suggestions in a way that becomes alive within you. And then to live it. <laughs> 